All right. So, uh, John Blake, award-winning journalist and now author, uh, welcome. Uh, I'm excited about this conversation. There are so many layers, and honestly, if I'm being honest right up front, we do not have enough time today to cover everything. So I'm going to do my very best to encapsulate uh, uh, everything around your new book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. Correct. Welcome, John. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Now, it's a story of family and racism and faith and forgiveness and the paranormal. And I think I'm going to stop there because when people hear paranormal, they think about those shows where people are yelling at ghosts and trying to get them. To, and it's not that. It's it's something so much more meaningful than that. But we're going to get to all of that. Uh, but I want to talk first about, you know, you grew up without a mom uh, and uh, dad had to fill in both roles. How did he do at that? Uh, it was very mixed at best. Yeah, and I grew up knowing I had a white mom, which for many people today uh, probably mean, doesn't mean that much. But in the world where I grew up in, um, it was when my parents met, it was literally illegal to get married to a person of another race. And also because of the environment that I grew up in, it was this all black inner city neighborhood when nobody really saw white people or, or liked them. There was just tremendous hostility toward white people. And this neighborhood, if, if I, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, um, it was the setting for the HBO series, The Wire. Mm -hmm. It was the setting for this, this big race riot in 2015 when a black man named Freddie Gray died in police custody. So it was not a good place to have a white mom. So I grew up what I call as what I call a closeted biracial person. I didn't tell anybody my mom was white. I mocked her race as black on school forums. So she was this huge mystery. And all I knew about her is that her name was Shirley, that she was white, and that her family hated black people. Mm. And so that's all my father told me. And to answer your question, he did his best as, as, as he could to fill in, but he spent most of his time overseas, like six, seven months out of the year. So I spent much of my, much of my time growing up in foster homes. Cool. Uh, that is tough for anybody. Um, in your neighborhood, did you ever feel like you belonged or didn't belong? Like, I hear people say, I don't feel black enough. Was that ever a problem? It was a little bit of that. I mean, I, I felt it It was a weird situation because I felt kind of this uh, whiplash because I experienced racism from, from my white family because I knew they didn't want anything to do with me because my father was black. But at the same time, I saw racial prejudice among black people, meaning my brother, I have a younger brother, uh, Patrick is only a year younger. We would be attacked, physically attacked, just because people suspect we had a white mom or because we have fair skin. Mm -hmm. So it was a very strange situation where you really saw the kind of the absurdity of racism from a very, I saw that from a very early age on, uh, young age. And it, it did create a sense of like, well, where do I, I, I belong? So I did feel some of that early on for sure. Do you remember any of your earliest memories? Like think of an early memory that doesn't necessarily feel negative around a race issue. Take me back to a, a good, positive, neg uh, early memory, if you have one, of your childhood. Well, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the earliest memories I have of race that, that did not involve anything negative actually came from the church that I grew up in. And... Um, it was an all black church. But one of the things that I felt and I absorbed in that church is that people had a sense of faith 
where they weren't willing to condemn all people because of their race color, because of the color of their skin. And so I, we had a we had a little uh, ritual in our church called testimony time, where people would get up and at spontaneously and share their struggles and their hopes, and people would listen. It was kind of like therapy because we couldn't afford a psychologist, so you had that kind of therapy. Sure. And but I remember when people I never heard anybody use slurs against white people in that kind of context. Mm-hmm. That showed me that there was another community, another way of thinking, where people weren't just consumed by racism. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good lesson. Now, when I started my, what I call my journey of faith, or as my late wife, Michelle and I called it shopping for Jesus. It was, it was back in 2000, 2012 ish, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an all black church. Very first church I walked into was an all black church. And it was, it was, a, and your te- story about testimony time, very similar. They got up there and they just shared. And it was, it was, yeah. it was very impactful. Do you remember that point in time where you finally realized and you started to understand what it meant that your mother had left? Oh, yes. Yes. I remember that moment very vividly because it happened on one day. Um, I had just turned 17. I was on my way to college and I had resigned myself to not meeting my mom or not knowing anything about this whole other side of my family. Mm -hmm. And then one day my father called me into his bedroom. He was watching The Price is Right on television. And he just said, do you want to meet your mom? Mm. And it was this shocker because I didn't even know she was alive. Three days later, I, along with my younger brother, Patrick, were being driven to this menacing red brick building in the outskirts of Maryland, mm. the countryside. And the building looks like the set from the Shawshank Redemption. It's very menacing. We were guided into this waiting room. And this is where we're told we're going to meet our mom. And I could hear people moan in pain in these distant hallways. Mm. And I could hear other people just breaking out into hysterical laughter, but I still don't quite know what's going on. And then this hospital orderly escorts this thin young white woman into the room. She has like these baggy hand-me-down goodwill donated clothes. Mm -hmm. She looks at me and her eyes light up and she says, oh boy, John. And then she looks at my brother. Oh boy, Pat, it's so good to see you. Mm-hmm. And she shuffles toward us. She hugs me. I don't quite know what to do because I had never even used the word mom before. Right. But it was my mom. That was the first time I saw her. And part of what was so shocking about that was not just this is the first time I'm seeing her. It's where I'm seeing her. We're in the waiting room of a mental institution. Mm. My mom had a severe form of a mental illness called schizophrenia. Okay. And no one had told us that she had suffered from that even on the way out to the waiting room to that hospital that day. We didn't make that discovery until we were there. And so, but one of the things that go back to your question that was just really memorable about that meeting is that before I met my mom, I had this conception of white people as people who could never relate to what it meant to be poor, to Mm. suffer, to be black. But when I saw my mom and thought, God, she's been living in this place most of my life. She's been suffering like that. I was like, I didn't know a black person could suffer like that. It was the first time that I had felt empathy toward a white person. And my mom, just by just looking at her within 15 minutes, she taught me that, she conveyed that to me. So it was it was an incredible shocker of a meeting. A couple of things to that point. First of all, uh, when the meeting was over, were you mad at your dad or your other relatives for not saying a word about where mom was? Yeah. Was, like, like you That's were gonna a- meet her in a mental institution. That's a good question. It would seem natural that I would be, but at the time I didn't have the mental energy to be mad at them because 
I suddenly became my mom's caretaker at 17. Yeah. And she had these illnesses and I had to visit her. But secondly, one of the reasons I wasn't so mad is because I instinctively knew they didn't know how to talk about it. Back then in the early 80s when I met my mom, people really didn't talk openly about mental illness. My parents, I mean, my father, they didn't know how to tell us. Mm. So I, I could sense, too, that they just didn't know how to. It was shame on their part. It was they, they just didn't know how to do it. And so I, I really wasn't that mad. I, I just, more than anything, I felt this tremendous sorrow for my mom. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we we haven't started talking or becoming comfortable talking about mental illness, I say, until really after we lost someone like Robin Williams, because everyone you thought, so? Robin, yeah, I think so, because I think Robin Williams, you know, everyone thought he was on this, 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 this other level of happiness, and it turns out he wasn't. And I think that started a, a real conversation about you just don't know what someone's going through. You know, JJ, what I heard is, you know, we talked during the pandemic. Mm. The pandemic has kind of accelerated a mental health crisis in this country. So many people are isolated. So much we, we've lost people, mm -hmm. and we hadn't. A lot of people haven't had a chance to properly mourn. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's still, to a certain degree, a, a stigma associated yeah. with talking about it. And uh, real quick, backing back up to your comment about how you develop some empathy uh, mm -hmm. when you realize that uh, white people could suffer like black people. Right. I I think I'd like to believe you're going to agree that. However, there is still a difference between a poor black person and a poor white person. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's empathy uh, is a start. But I one of the things I try to tell people is that when I share my story, I'm not saying or trying to imply that if, you know, white and black people just became friends, racism would disappear. Mm -hmm. you know, racism is about power. It's about mm -hmm. institutions. It's about more than personal relationship. But. These personal relationships is also a key to addressing it. You, when you grow up in the world I grew up in, if it's all any one race, it's almost inevitable that you would develop these stereotypes about other groups of people you have no contact with. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get rid of those, those, those stereotypes and to see the complexity of all people is to come in contact. You mm -hmm. actually meet people to be in relationship and community with them. So, yeah, that's what was so significant about meeting my mom. So uh, up until your story, the only real frame of reference I had about St. Jude, the patron saint of oh, yeah. causes, uh, was, you know, Danny Thomas's story. The quarter under the statue, he pledged his allegiance to St. Jude and he would honor him by building that that, that complex that he built. Your story about St. Jude has has a different implication. Yeah. from When I met my mom at the end of our first meeting, when I met her at this mental institution, she said something to me that was kind of curious to me because I didn't know what she meant. But at the end of the meeting, she said, will you mail me a St. Jude medal? And I didn't even know who St. Jude was. I grew up in a black Baptist church. My mom was a devout Irish Catholic young woman. Okay. But I began to read about it. And St. Jude was the patron saint of hopeless causes. And the reason my mom, she was just loved St. Jude. Every time I visited her, she visited her. She wanted a St. Jude medal or prayer book. I had this feeling there was a warehouse somewhere where there were all these things. I was like, where do you put these things? Right. But she saw herself as a hopeless cause. And her faith was one of the few things that really got her through those difficult times being in these places where, you know, these where people are forgotten, really. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So meeting with mom went okay. Can't really say the same about the initial meeting with mom's sister. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, probably about five or six years after meeting my mom, I'm in my mid-20s, and I get word that her sister wants to meet me. 
And I had heard stories about her sister. I heard stories that her sister was an unrepentant racist, that she had called us a zebra child, mm. zebra children, wanted nothing to do with us. So I didn't know why she wanted to meet with us, and I didn't really want to meet with her. But I said, let me consent to this meeting because she probably wants to apologize for being absent from my life because of her racism. And so when I met her, we talked. It was real polite. Uh, we met again. But there was no apology. And we kept on meeting until one day I finally asked her, I said, and her name is Mary. Mm -hmm. I said, Mary, um, why didn't you reach out to me when I was younger? Was it because I was black? And she said, oh, no, no, it had nothing to do with your race. It was because you weren't Catholic. I didn't, we were taught never to associate with non-Catholics. And her response even infuriated me anymore. Mm. It made me angrier because it was denial. She couldn't admit that her family had this tremendous you know, hostility toward us because we were black. We knew the stories. I knew, for example, when my father first went to visit my mom, her father answered the door called him the N-word, physically assaulted him, and had him arrested by the police. And JJ, keep in mind, people don't really, I think people forget about this. In the mid-60s, a black man could get killed mm. for walking down the street with a white woman. You don't even think about it. Her Belafonte, who just recently passed in 1968, he was on a variety show singing a duet with a singer named Batula Clark, a British white mm -hmm. woman. Yep. She touched his forearm, and that was a huge uproar. So my aunt's denial to me denied all that history, and it just made me angry. So that was my first exposure to her. Yeah, using uh, the terms they used and the violence they used is not because you're not Catholic. I think we can. Yes. I think we can all agree on that. But you know, there you are, you know, championing the idea of racial reconciliation and and developing these relationships. You ever feel like a hypocrite because you weren't working on your own stuff? I, I felt like I had to work on my stuff. You mean when I was a younger man? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I don't feel like a hypocrite. I feel like my experience, that's a good question, my experience growing up actually gives me more insight and compassion to people who do grow up in these environments, who absorb these racist beliefs without mm -hmm. even knowing it. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Sure. If you had come to me at 16 or 17 and said I was a hypocrite, that I had my own problem with racism, I wouldn't have not, I couldn't even comprehend what you were saying. It would make no sense to me because in the world I grew up, I wasn't being racist. That was normal thinking. And it goes back to what a lot of people say about racism. A lot of racism is caught rather than taught. Mm. You absorb it. You don't know it. You don't, you're not aware that you're seeing one group of people in a different way. Mm -hmm. So that made me, as I became older, as I became a journalist writing about racism, it actually made me more empathetic toward people who had these racist beliefs, because I was like, you know what? I can relate. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to uh, the point on relationships again, because you've brought it up a couple of times. Uh, you say how relationships change um, people. What changed between your relationship between you and your aunt? Like, how did that fence get mended? <laughs> yeah, that's my big thing. I tell people that relationships change people. Facts don't. I mean, facts don't change people. Relationships do. And mm -hmm. my aunt Mary is the one who really helps show show that and what changed was this i had my own racial awakening in of all places a lowe's and home improvement store mm. aisle seven <laughs> the paint section i love the paint section <laughs> <laughs> so, th so this is what happened these years go by and i have this uneasy relationship with my mother's sister now because she won't accept her racism 
she's writing all these letters to me and she's reaching out to me, but I won't open the letters because I'm saying she's in, she's in denial. Mm. I don't want to hear these excuses. So I stopped opening these letters and I just kind of write her out of my life. I go to Lowe's one morning to get some paint for my deck. And when I go to the store, there's a black and a white employee behind the counter at Lowe's, both the Lowe's employee. The white Lowe's employee is on the phone, but the black Lowe's employee is free. He's not talking to anyone. I wait for about five or 10 minutes until the white employee's off the phone. And then I go up to him and I say, what's the right paint for my deck? And he gives me this paint and he mixes it. I take the paint home and I'll pour it out on the paint tray. And it's this rainbow colored concoction, mm. this long paint. And then it hits me, JJ. I was like, God, I just racially profiled this black man. I assumed in that millisecond that the white Lowe's employee was more competent. Mm. So I waited for him to get off the phone. But the black man who was free, I didn't even go up to him. And I'm like, wow, I am this black man. I, I grew up in this world. I've seen racism. Here I am, this race writer. I know I read all these books about unconscious bias and I've interviewed people like Ibram Kending and all that. Mm. But in that millisecond, that stuff is so powerful that I racially profiled this black man. It turns out he was the manager of the store. Wow. And then I, then I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe you should show a little grace to your Aunt Mary. She grew up in this all white world and she didn't know any difference. So what I did is I went upstairs to my office when I kept all these letters that she had written and I started opening them and I started reading them. Mm. And JJ, everything I wanted from her was in those letters. Mm. Start apologizing. She said, she said, I was ashamed to have two black nephews, but I didn't know how to tell you. She said, I grew up in this all white world when we went to school. They didn't even talk about slavery or civil rights movement. She said, I thought the only racists were people who owned slaves. And she said, I hope you can understand me and have compassion to me. But if you're so angry at me and you don't want anything to do with me, I will understand. And so when I saw that, it humbled me and I called her. And that was the beginning of our real relationship. And now we're extremely close. That means a lot to me. And you bring up the word grace. For me, grace is such a powerfully important word, both in the sense that you have the ability to give it and you should always be willing to accept it, give yourself some grace, accept it from other people. I mean, it's one of those things that I think is a foundation for, for growth. You know, how, how did you discover the power of grace in your life? If I can ask a question. Well, then, no, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with my dad. Um, similar situation with, with, unopened letters let's say so my mom and my, my mom and my dad they split when they were very young uh when we was very young uh my brother stayed with my dad in england i was born in england and my sister and i went with my mother and we moved to the states you know back then i didn't care about how hard of a decision that was you know all i cared about is well now i don't have my dad uh and i wrote him a lot uh and sent letters a lot and he never returned any of them and by the time i turned 13 14 i was an i was an angry dude and i wanted nothing to do with him i'm like this dude obviously just wants nothing to do with his son don't care and i wrote him out of my life fast forward uh to my reunion i had you know i this was 2013 so it had been about 40 years since i'd seen my dad and i went back over to england with with michelle and uh you know i learned things that i didn't know about i learned there were some other people involved in letters not getting to him or letters not getting to me. Um, and it was uh, a woman named Emma who said to me, you know, 
you're so mad at your situation, but understand it just wasn't about you. Yeah. You know, there were people on that side of the pond, on that side of the family who lost a nephew, who lost a cousin, who lost a son, you know, a lost a brother, you know, and, and like a light bulb went on. And I realized I had to stop being so mad at them. And it would be hypocritical of me to not extend some grace toward and, and try and understand his situation a little better. Now, since then, um, you know, we, we've, we stay pretty connected through uh, video chats and things like that. Um, and this past summer, a couple months ago, my sister and I and my brother um, got to reunite and be in the same room for the first time in 50 years. So, um, wow. yeah, loved it. was your heart like hammering in your chest when you saw it? No, it, well, it, it really wasn't because, um, you know, I'd seen my, my brother and my my sister and I, we'd all kind of met separately at separate visits uh, over there. But this was the first time we were all together. Um, this meeting the siblings we all knew this wasn't so much about us in our 50-year reunion this was my mother and my dad almost finding some closure in what was a very hard decision they had to make yeah. about splitting up the family yeah. you know and that's the realization we came to so it was almost a second layer of grace there uh this past july and it was a great meeting and and uh uh a fun time in england and and uh, we continue to grow as a family and try to understand that you know what we're okay you made the you made a hard decision that i can't even possibly begin to imagine what what it was like so yeah beautiful story that was a good that was a good question i, I wasn't expecting you to turn the tables but i should have expected it from another journal sure. so <laughs> uh, all right so now i want to get to um the paranormal part of we we alluded to at the beginning of this conversation you know your mom dies and you see the signs that i saw as far as what first connected you to me i talked about I me mean, michelle's purple lights here in wichita uh mm -hmm. the cardinals the fog and all that your mom dies, you started recognizing some of those signs, but it never really dawned on you that, I don't know, maybe it was otherworldly related or there were going to be ghosts or anything like that, right? Yeah, I mean, and um, I saw those signs when my mom passed, but I also saw those signs way before she passed. So mm -hmm. it started uh, early on for me when I was uh, probably about eight or nine. Um, and this is what drew me to your story. Um, I was in a room with my brother one night and we were awakened and I had never felt such terror in my life. Mm -hmm. And I knew something was wrong, that something was in the room. I was drenched in his cold sweat and I could, I could feel like something was in the room, but I didn't know what was going on. And then I looked over to my dresser and I saw a thin white man with his back toward me rummaging through my dresser like he was looking for something. Mm -hmm. And he had these old clothes on, like vintage clothes from the 1950s, and he had this crew cut on. And I didn't recognize him. And I could not figure out who he was. My brother couldn't figure out who he was. And we just looked and looked and looked terrified. I couldn't move or scream or anything. And I awakened. We finally fell asleep because of exhaustion. And I awakened the next morning. I thought that was a dream. Maybe my brother and I, we hallucinated something together. Mm -hmm. But I saw physical evidence. There were footprints all over the floor, like someone had stepped in paint. And there were actually things missing from my dresser. For years, we could not figure out who was this man. We didn't tell anybody about it. And we didn't like talking about it because it's such a terrifying experience. Fast forward to when I met my Aunt Mary. Mm -hmm. She started showing me pictures of my mother's family. And then she showed me a picture of my mother's father, the same one who assaulted my father, called him the N-word, who hated black people. Mm. When I saw that picture, the, the, the chills just ran through my body. That was the man I saw in my room. That was my grandfather. 
the one who wanted nothing to do with black people who had died, you know, years before, mm. you know, when I was very young, he had somehow come back and visited me and my brother when we were younger. Yeah. Now you think that's the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story because what do you do with an experience like that? I don't know about you when you, you know, the purple lights, if you felt kind of like, maybe I don't share this with people, but I didn't tell people about this because I didn't want people to think something was wrong with me. Sure. Sure. I get married. I become a man. My wife knows nothing about this. You know, you, you tell people about your family, but I wasn't going to tell her about this. Mm, yeah. And then one morning I wake up and she's drenched in sweat and she's freaked out. She's like, I was like, what's wrong? And she says, I tried to wake you last night, but you wouldn't awaken. I said, what happened? She said, I awakened and there was this white man standing over the bed looking at you with this troubled expression and you wouldn't wake up. And that happened again twice with her. So, to, you know, to kind of tie it up, this man that I thought not, had wanted nothing to do with me from beyond the grave wanted a lot to do with me. And he kept visiting me. And I had to figure out why was he visiting me? What did he want? And how do I stop this from happening? Because my wife was terrified. Yeah, I, that would create a lot of questions because why Why is this guy not right. leaving me alone? Um, and it was a hospice worker who helped kind of yes. steer your yes. perspective in a different direction. Yes. I had, um, so I'm, I'm looking for people to help. Like, I don't know about you when you had your experience, you try to figure out what is this? And you, I don't want to go to just anybody because like I said, I don't want anyone to feel like something is wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Then I read this essay in the Washington Post by this hospice worker who talked about how when people near death, they often see their loved ones or people. And I said, this guy's pretty open-minded. He can help me. Right. And so I call him and I was like, what's going on? His name is Scott. I said, what does he want? And Scott said, you already know the answer, but here's what I think. And he told me, he said, just think about your grandfather. The only stories you heard about him was that he was this cold hearted racist who wanted nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. Just think of that kind of guilt or what that must have felt like to him. He went to his grave knowing he could have had a relationship with you in your in your in your brother, but he didn't because of his racism. Think about the guilt and the torment. He left those footprints on person because on, on deliberately because he wanted you to follow his trail, to know he was there, to know that he was more than just a racist, that mm. he felt sorry. And that clicked for me. And that made sense to me. And so what I had to do is I had to learn more about him. And he was so much more complex than just being a racist. And one of the things I say, and this might sound like dangerous, but I say, you don't define somebody by their worst act. That was his worst act, but that wasn't all who, who he was. Mm. He was more complex than that. And he felt sorrow for what he did. So that was, I think, the thing that really drove his visits. And I'm glad you saw that because I, I think it speaks to the fact that it's never too late even from beyond the grave to atone for yeah. your actions. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. If I can add this, uh, you know, it, it really kind of changed the way I approach my work. It sounds weird, but it's one of those other things that made me more empathetic toward people who see the world differently that, you know, I tell people in a way he haunted me, but I haunted him. Mm -hmm. And it was, yeah. it was just, it was, it was just a powerful thing to experience. We are the sum of our parts and our actions. And there are things that, haunt me and everybody else choices we've made that, you know, back to my mother and my father, that whole for, for decades, that probably haunted them that they had to split the family up. So it, you're, you're absolutely right. So now let's um, let's get to the answer as we get ready to wrap up here, John. I mean, okay. you know, I want a better world for my, bi my, my biracial granddaughters. I have two um, and I want a better world for them. 
I want to know that I won't get so angry when I see the endings to shows like, you know, seven seconds on Netflix or realize how privileged my white historical upbringing was when I read the 1619 project. What's the answer? How can we, how can we keep these relationships and build a less hateful world? Well, for me is, and I can't say I'm a fount of wisdom, but for me, um, what really gives me a lot of hope is actually the example of my mom and my dad. And you talk about your biracial granddaughters. So I don't know if you're out in public with them or you, you, I I suspect if you're out with them, no one really bats an eye when they see you with them. Mm. Nobody really bats an eye if they see interracial couples or biracial children anymore. It's, It's not a big deal. And I've asked myself, like, how did that remarkable change take place within my lifetime? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it goes back to me, to the example of my mom and dad. So think about it. Like I said, when they dated, a black man could literally get killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back in 1963, around 64, the time I was born, they took a poll and over 90 percent of Americans oppose interracial marriage. Gallup took a poll two years ago, like 94 percent of Americans approve of it. And that cuts across racial political lines and i asked like like, how did that happen and i think it happened in part because of what my mom and dad did and that is this goes to your question about giving you know hope and not despairing they didn't wait for politicians or judges to say interracial marriage is right they knew that it was the right thing to do that you love people regardless of their Mm -hmm. skin color Mm -hmm. and so they acted on it when others like them acted on it too it created a ripple effect and, and this ripple effect built and built until finally the judges and the politicians had to come along. But it started with them. And so what I tell people is something that this writer I really like says. He says, he says, norms change before policy changes. When ordinary people start doing something, that creates the ripple effect. That creates the change. I mean, that's how we got gay marriage. Whatever your beliefs, long before the court said, Gay marriage, you know, gay marriage is constitutional. You should love who you love, regardless of, uh, you know, sexual orientation. Gay and lesbian people were coming out on their jobs, to their families, to their friends, and that created their ripple effect. So, to me, ordinary people have tremendous power. We have tremendous power in this country by the actions we take in our private lives to create tremendous racial change. My mom saw herself as a hopeless cause, but she has so much more power than she realized. Mm. She and my dad and other people like that created this world, unleashed this change that now you have these, you know, these biracial grandchildren and it's not a big deal. Yeah. If we can change those kind of issues that seem to be at the time, if you would have told people we would live in such a world, they wouldn't believe you. If we can change things that way. We can change other issues that way. And it's up to us by how we act in our private lives, as well as other issues. I'm not, this is one thing I want to be careful about. Sure. Not implying that if white and black people hug one another, we'll, racism will disappear. Racism is also about power. There are other things. you got to pass laws and policy. But also, mm-hmm. what's part of that fight is what we do in our private lives, yeah. how we reach out to people who are different. Yep, definitely. Ordinary people can do extraordinary things, for sure. Yeah. All right. So, again, uh, John Blake, I appreciate you very much. The book is called More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. It's an important story and an important read, uh, and I'm glad I got a chance to talk about it and share it. So thank you so much. Thank you, JJ, for having me.